Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 14. This is the last portion of Job's speech in the first round of dialogue with his friends. In chapter 12, Job agreed with his friends as to the sovereign ordination of God over all things. And yet, his situation clearly represents a challenge to their particular view of the world. Job is willing to acknowledge it, whereas his friends, as of yet, are not. Job sees the same tension they do, based on what they know of the universe. Either Job is a sinner or God is unjust. Those are the only answers that they come to based on the information that they have. But Job isn't satisfied with either of those options. So he keeps pressing on and bumping up against unpleasant possibilities but he is determined to find some kind of answer. In chapter 13, Job expresses frustration with the limitations of human wisdom, especially the fortune cookie version of human wisdom that has been spewing out of the mouths of his friends. He wants something deeper, something more robust. He wants something that deals with the complexity of his own situation. But his friends don't seem to have anything like that to offer. So Job tells them to shut up. He wants to think and wrestle in silence. And ultimately, he wants to hear from God. That's his only hope. And time is running out. That brings us then to the final portion of his speech. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. Once again, Job sounds a lot like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. The best life can offer, the preacher says, is food, drink, and meaningful employment Searching after anything more than that is a fool's errand. Suffering has a way of moderating human ambition. Job is a realist now, maybe even a pessimist. He agrees with Thomas Hobbes, or better yet, Thomas Hobbes agrees with him. The life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, closed quote. People are like flowers, Job says. They live, they die and are forgotten. A human being could never hope to please God. Therefore, the best thing God could do is just look away. 
Leave us alone. Leave us to our puny little lives to enjoy whatever small pleasures we can afford before we slide finally into death and shadow. Job is feeling less than cheery about the prospect of human life on planet Earth, which leads him briefly to express a moment of breathtaking hope in the possibility of life after death before falling back again quickly into despair. Listen carefully. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grows old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. The example of certain trees leads Job down the road of contemplating life after death. Some trees live again after you cut them down. There are certain types of oak tree, for example, that occasionally seem to come back to life in the form of shoots that emerge out of the stump and grow up again into health and maturity. Maybe human life is like that, Job wonders. Perhaps, like a seed, my soul will be pressed down into Sheol until the wrath of God passes over me. Then, perhaps, renewal may come. God may call and and summon us, as it were, out of the grave to live again without the overwhelming burden of our previous sins and iniquities. It could be like that, Job suggests, verse 18. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They're brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. Job's burst of hope is punctured by the thought of a contradictory comparison. The mountains fall and do not rise again. The same waters that soften the tree stump to make way for the new shoot to grow actually erode and efface the mountains and remove the very memory of them from the earth. It's probably more like that for human beings. Man dies, and his children may live on, and they may do well or they may do poorly, but either way, the man himself will know nothing of it. 
he will crumble. He will die and be forgotten. That's where Job lands in this last section of his speech. Many scholars consider the final portion of Job's speech to be a classic example of ancient Eastern poetry. A modern Western poem would never work this way. Western minds tend to be linear, so we expect the high water mark of a poem to come at the end. But here in this section, it comes in the middle. There is eye-popping faith and far-seeing vision in verses 13 to 17. But then it is quickly followed by doubt as it was preceded by doubt. And that just feels weird to us as modern Western readers. Job is like a man adrift on a raging sea. He goes down into the valley and then up again, seemingly without end and seemingly without direction. Now, some see that as poetry. Others see it as realism. Because when you work with seriously hurting people, you will often observe a sort of two steps forward, two steps back pattern to their processing and recovery. One minute they see the hand of God and trust his providential work. And then the next minute they see their situation as proof of God's non-existence or his outright hostility towards them. They're up and they're down. They're all over the place. And that is often the way it goes with seriously wounded people. So it could be realism, or it could be poetic design, or it could be both. I tend to think it's both. I, I think that this section represents the intention of the author to capture Job's fluctuating faith in a terribly difficult situation. Sometimes he has it. Sometimes he sees, but then weighted down by sorrow, sometimes he sinks down into the muck and is completely overwhelmed in darkness. Whatever the rhyme or reason, there can be no doubt that verses 13 to 17 represent the theological climax of this first round of speeches. Even if for just a second, Job has seen something that could offer some kind of resolution to his personal and theological agony. Francis Anderson remarks here, verses 14 to 17 then constitute the high point of the speech and reaffirm the faith already expressed in chapter 13, especially in verse 15. Job is holding his own and then falling apart. He is achieving new heights of insight and understanding and then crashing back down again into the valley of pessimism and despair. His friends, however, remain sitting on the sidelines. They have their feet firmly planted on proverbial ground. They won't swim out into the deep waters with Job. And they won't let go of their wooden and inflexible worldview. And as a result, they have absolutely nothing to offer. That's how things stand at the end of round one. Job is struggling, but he has not yet gone under. He is riding the waves and just barely keeping his head above water. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 